Hello, everyone, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes. Uh, as we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And we're going to continue, of course, with our coverage of the war between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East. Um, I do want to mention in passing culturally, we'll try to get this in next week, the death of Richard Roundtree, uh, my son Benjamin's favorite actor, and uh, the hero of the Three Shaft movies, uh, the black exploitation genre that really helped African Americans find their voice in American cinema, a film with a black hero directed by someone who was black and the author of the book Shaft, Mr. Tittiman, Ernest Tittiman was also black. And it's a fascinating look at African Americans look in the 70s for the first time, their own voice, not white people saying what black people think, but a, but a film starring uh, a black person, Richard Roundtree, and the tremendous performance of Shaft, um, and then Shaft's big score in Shaft in Africa. Um, that that's that's exciting, and I want to I want to look back in a retrospective of why Shaft matters because it's an underrated cultural moment for the United States as African Americans get to speak with their own voice. And um, although you, there's a political element in terms of black power, as was said at the time by Gordon Parks, the director. Um, everyone needs a little James Bond in their life, and African Americans going to the cinema and seeing a black man on the screen pitted against white foes and winning um, in and of itself talks about times changing, and that's an important cultural moment. And with the passing of the great Richard Roundtree at 81 from pancreatic cancer, next week we're going to try to have a look at why Shaft matters and films that seem to be a subgenre actually say an awful lot about American society, and I think that'll be interesting. And Benjamin, I know my oldest son, loves these movies, and we've seen them together. And uh, um, I, I want to second his devotion to Richard Roundtree. So we'll do a culture segment on that as soon as we can. But before then, um, that of course will be just for subscribers. Uh, before then, though, I want to go back to the Middle East and. Uh, there's been a tremendous, uh, as, as is true in times of crisis for political risk people like myself, uh, this happened with the Ukraine war and this is happening now with the Israeli-Hamas war. There is a tremendous outpouring of support for our work that, you, that in a time of crisis, you see how valuable good political risk is. And I'm very gratified for that and want to continue um, giving you cutting edge first rate analysis of what's going on in this region. Um we attacked last time um, now Ferguson's uh, attempt to conflate everything together in a neoconservative Wilsonian way, looking for the unified field theory of foreign policy as though all our enemies were specter in a coherent, rational manner getting together and discussing business as though they moved all the pieces of the chessboard yeah, as one, which of course isn't the case, that it's far better for us to keep these crises separate. And Ferguson and some of his neoconservative and Wilsonian hawk allies uh, dubbed what's happening World War III with the three brush fires being uh, Taiwan, which, as you know, we think is the name of the game, the Chinese efforts to take over Taiwan, which will tell us the tale of the Indo-Pacific, the world's most important region. Uh, that's one thing going on. Of course, the Ukraine war, which I think is a third order interest, has been lumped together as President Biden did by trying to get aid from Ukraine, $60 billion worth a horrendous amount of money for a country, $33 trillion in debt. And with bond rates rising, as the markets have just discovered American fiscal profligacy, 
Um, there's that. And then third, of course, is the crisis in the Middle East now. But rather than focus on World War III, I think the way to look at this is, again, look at these brush fires individually, but look at how they could get out of control, that this is important for average human beings and for the investors that we counsel. And certainly each of these three crises, these brush fires, have the potential to be a conflagration. And in the Middle East, uh, it's World War I that's the model. Uh, avoiding World War I is what we should be doing. Avoiding, uh, Christopher Clark wrote the, the book on this, uh, on this subject. It's called The Sleepwalkers. And although Clark's book has been lauded to the skies, I love the idea of the book, though I admit the writing is turgid at best. Uh, and I had to kind of struggle through the writing. I do care about the beauty of the word and the language, as everyone knows who's heard me write or seen me write or heard me speak. But so it is turgid. I, I, have, I have qualifications to Clark's genius. But what, what he gets right ideationally is the idea that World War I wasn't just the fault of the Germans and that really that the context was a series of decisions, badly made decisions, kind of middle ranking, badly made decisions by, by people in Serbia, by people in Austria-Hungary, by people in Russia, and by people in Germany. That, that it's these series of miscalculations that nobody meant on their own to start this war, and yet the greatest modern conflagration, World War I, began from these series of mistakes and things got out of hand, and the brush fire became a conflagration. And I think that's right. And World War I for me is, is the Ur text, the genesis moment of the modern world. When a when hundred years of relative peace in Europe, yes, I know there was, there was the Franco-Prussian War and the Crimean War, but broadly from the end of the field at Waterloo in 1815 into, until 1914, you have peace in Europe. And that's an incredible accomplishment in retrospect. And you have this the Victorian era and this time of British dominance, a lot of fighting around the world. But in Europe itself, the center of Western civilization at the time, it's fairly peaceful. And then suddenly this has exploded and we live in the nightmare of the 20th century when America had to ride to the rescue three times. And Americans shouldn't be shy about mentioning this, that, that we're, we're given all kinds of negatives for, rightly so, for Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam that we got a lot of the smaller things wrong, but the big three strategic moments of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, I think emphatically we helped save the world and we got right. And no one has a record that good strategically. And this is so it, 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 and yet Americans never mention anything they do right, only the things they do wrong. And I think this is historically misleading. Um, but, th but this is really very much the record. But World War I is where the modern world began. And it comes out of this series of miscalculations that Clark, through an impressive amount of scholarship, um, looking at the archives of the Russians, the French, the Austro-Hungarians, the Germans, uh, and not just the English-speaking world, really, in his book, The Sleepwalkers, you know, puts to right. So if you can get through the prose, it's worth reading for, for the ideas behind it, which are fine, much better than the prose. Um, so there's that. That's more likely to happen now, that rather than as Ferguson, the neocons and the Wilsonian Hawks are doing, seeing these things as interrelated in a specter-like way that number seven will talk about blackmail and number eight will talk about drugs and that they're all marching together as some sort of single unforeseen hidden hand that runs the world, that, again, you know, Ferguson's uh, 
political risk firms called Green Mantle after the great John Buchan novel. And Buchan had a habit, and I love his stories. Richard Hannay was the James Bond of the British Imperial era, and Green Mantle is probably the best of the stories, though the 39 Steps is pretty good. Um, but this isn't how the world really works. It's fun to read stories that way because it simplifies the complicated. What's much more likely to happen is a World War I situation where one of these three crises on its own and unrelated or largely unrelated, certainly not determined by the other two, as Ferguson would have you believe, one of these crises, brush fires, gets out of control and becomes a conflagration like World War I. And I think that's much more likely to happen. So we've talked before about how the hinge point in Ukraine would be if the Ukrainians would break through to Crimea. The, the Russians would have an awful lot of pressure on them to use tactical nuclear weapons, and that, that would change the game entirely. And that's thank thank God they're not going to break through because, because that would that would make that single brush fire a conflagration, and we would live in a very different world if that were to happen. Uh, the good news for the world is that the stalemate means that Ukraine breaking through to Crimea is 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 highly unlikely, and so that's unlikely to get out of hand. And that, that's good news indeed. Uh, we haven't talked in, in detail really about how an invasion of Taiwan would look. We've talked an awful lot about the Indo-Pacific and Taiwan, but how an invasion would look, we haven't. I'm sure at some future date in the near term we're going to. But certainly that could get out of hand too, as either superpower and nuclear power, America or China, began to lose a war. And let's remember, one of the great secrets to success in the Cold War for that not getting out of control and becoming a very hot nuclear weapons is that the Russians and the Americans took great pains to never formally face off against one another. And because of these great pains, uh, nuclear war, certainly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were real rules to how this worked, and they never directly uh, faced one another after that, and as a result, there was no nuclear war. The problem with a war over Taiwan is that China and the United States would very quickly be eyeball to eyeball, and somebody would be losing, somebody would have an awful lot on the line in terms of geostrategic primacy and credibility, and everybody would have nuclear weapons. So that could easily get out of control in a Christopher Clark sleepwalkers-like way. But so with the Middle East, which in terms of import would fall between the two, whereas, whereas uh, the Indo-Pacific is the primary American interest going forward, and whereas Ukraine is a tertiary interest, uh, the, the Middle East and Israel as a special relationship with the United States is a primary American interest, though less, less fundamental, I would argue, than the Indo-Pacific for the future of the world. But Israel certainly has a special relationship with the United States, and in uh, polling that you've just seen out, Somewhere around 70% of Americans support aiding Israel. It's, it's a very high number. Uh, both Democrats, Republicans, and even independents do. So um, d d Republicans at slightly higher rates, about 80. Democrats at 70. Independents in the upper 60s. But overwhelming support across the board for aiding Israel moving ahead. Um, and so this is a primary interest that's engaged. But this brush fire, which we haven't spent any time talking about, is what I want to talk about now, because this could get out of hand. And political risk-wise, what would getting out of hand look like? What would be the Christopher Clark steps for this brush fire becoming a conflagration? And uh, that's how I think we have to look at it and how analysis can go forward. And the parameters of this are pretty clear. 
First of all, just to bring you up to speed, um, since our last podcast, what's been happening is the Biden administration, while uh, certainly overtly supporting Israel, diplomatically supporting Israel and providing wherewithal for Israel, agreeing to help replenish Iron Dome, Israel's very good anti-missile system, uh, agreeing to do that. Two aircraft carrier task forces sit off the Mediterranean Sea, telling Hezbollah, the Rolls-Royce of terrorist groups in Lebanon, not to twitch or open a second front, or they would meet the full force of both the Eisenhower and I believe the Reagan is the second aircraft carrier group. The first is the Eisenhower. No, it's the Ford. It's the Eisenhower and the Ford are the two carrier groups in the, in the Mediterranean. Um, rather than, than meeting them, that everyone is kind of daggers drawn. And so support from America varies very public. But privately, the, the Biden administration have urged Netanyahu to go slow. And the reasons for this are Americans, the American administration wants to get in place anti-missile missiles. Uh, that sit in the Middle East to protect American servicemen uh, that are still, for some reason, that defies description in Iraq and in Syria. They certainly shouldn't be there. Also in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and further afield. And so Jordan, for instance. And so we want to put our anti-missiles in place so that they can't be, Americans can't be shot at as this crisis increases. So it allows America to move our wherewithal into the Middle East. Secondly, Biden is telling Bibi Netanyahu to hesitate so that the Qataris can continue to negotiate with their guests, Hamas, who stay at the very, and I've been to Qatar, who stay at very nice hotels there uh, while their people are suffering. They're at a five-star hotel in Qatar. And so they're meeting with the trade to get the 200 or so hostages taken barbarously by Hamas to be released, to give that process time to play out, and also to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza to prove that the United States does indeed care about the plight of the Palestinians. And so all this is putting pressure on Bibi to go slow. Now, he's rhetorically said he doesn't care uh, that this will be determined by the Israeli war cabinet, basically between him and Benny Gantz, the former chief of the Israeli general staff, his political rival, who's now entered the government to provide a kind of unity government for Israel, that, that he and Gantz will make this decision. But America has been putting pressure on Israel to go slow, and that's part of why this process has seemed to drag on. But at the same time, nobody's arguing that it, will, it, it won't happen, and that certainly the overwhelmingly likely outcome in political risk terms is that in Israel goes into Gaza goes into the Gaza metro, as it's known, instead of feeding its people, as Gaza has been an independent entity since 2006, 2007, and Hamas has run the place since sh shortly thereafter. Um, they've, they've spent their money on missiles to kill Israelis and building this intricate tunnel system known as the Gaza metro, where they hide Hamas fighters and they hide wherewithal to attack Israel. That's what they've spent their money on. Shame on them. What a moral abdication of responsibility. But this is what they've done. And so Israel, the goal is to go in and take these tunnels down, take, destroy Hamas's wherewithal, decapitate the senior Hamas leadership. That is specifically what Israel is going to try to accomplish here. And Hamas, in a very cowardly fashion, is hiding amidst its people, putting weapons around schools and mosques and underground. And whereas Israel uses missiles to defend its people, Hamas uses people to defend its missiles. And anybody who can't see that moral difference needs to leave 
Harvard, Oxford, and these other places and get a genuine education uh, because this is obviously barbaric and certainly what's going on. And the goal of Israel will be to take over this incredibly intricate Byzantine maze of tunnels, this 300 miles of tunnels, root out Hamas fighters there, destroy their wherewithal, and around the world decapitate the senior Hamas leadership. That would be, quote-unquote, destroying Hamas specifically. That's what they would attempt to do. Of course, when they do this, the rest of the world isn't going to sit still. The key to avoiding a World War I-type scenario in over this crisis is not Hamas and Israel, which everybody's watching, but is on Israel's northern border, Hezbollah. And as I've said before, let's look at this from a, from a slightly different perspective. Let's look at this from Iran's perspective, which is the paymaster and the state behind both Hamas and Hezbollah. Hamas are very much ugly, ugly stepsister here. Hamas are Sunni, whereas Iranians are Shia, so they're not co-religionists and they disagree on things as fundamental as the Syrian civil war. They're at arm's length. Really, the way think think about Israel and Hamas's relationship is that is that, and, and I, I say this from someone who lives in this world, that Iran is a grant giver, basically. Uh, to Hamas. Hamas come to them and say, here are plans for messing around with Israel. Hamas say, no, we don't want to do that one, or yeah, we'll fund that one. And then Hamas is largely left to their own devices. So in general, does it does Iran know what, 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 what Hamas is up to? Yes, of course. And are they involved, culpable for that reason? Yes, of course. Do they know the specifics of every single operation? No more than any grant giver knows what I'm doing. No, they know that broadly we agree, that broadly I agree to get a book or a speech or something done on time. And other than that, it's left to me to decide in freedom of maneuver how to do that. They're not co-religionists being Sunni rather than Shia, as are the Iranians. They even have more room to run with the football. This is not true, not true of Hezbollah. Again, the Rolls-Royce of terrorist groups, whereas Hamas has several thousand missiles, uh, some of them bad, some of them good. Uh, Hezbollah has tens of thousands of missiles. And whereas there are a few thousand fighters fighting for Hamas, uh, under 10,000, certainly um, Hezbollah has anywhere from 30 to 50,000 very well-trained fighters. Again, they are, they are the Rolls-Royce of terrorist organizations. And they also organically are part of the Lebanese political structure in a way that, that Hamas really isn't. They, what, whatever government runs, runs Lebanon, they have to be nodded at by Hezbollah, who really have 30 to 35 percent of the power with Lebanon, not enough to form a majority, but they have a plurality of the power. Nobody runs Lebanon with at least the tacit approval of Hamas. So they have real organic political roots in Lebanon itself. So this is a very different, to say they're both terrorist groups, and, and again, to conflate them together, really misses the point. The interesting political risk point is the differences between how Iran views Hamas, which they don't care about particularly, and Hezbollah, which they talk to on a daily basis. Hezbollah are Shia. Um, the Iranian leadership are Shia. They are co-religionists. They speak, they have a special relationship. They're on the phone with each other every day in the way the United States is with Israel or, say, the UK. That's how that relationship works very differently. And so Hezbollah, far more powerful, far more respected in the region, is now in a bad way because the, the ugly stepsister Hamas has been the one to strike a blow against Israel. 
And so Hamas, who, who have daily brainwashing indoctrinations about the fantasy of destroying Israel, look pretty silly and pretty weak and pretty discredited as the ugly stepdaughter is doing all the work and gaining all the glory in the South. And so there is deep pressure on them from within the region in the Arab street. And let's stop this nonsense in the Arab street. Don't support Hamas. Polling from 2022-2023 makes it clear Hamas has between 60 or 70 percent support among Palestinian people, far more than Fatah, numbers that Western leaders would kill for. And so the idea that somehow you can separate the poor suffering people of Gaza, who like Hamas, they voted for these people. The reason Fatah haven't had an election in 15 years is they would lose it. They would lose it to Hamas. So let's look at things as they actually are. But Hezbollah matters infinitely more to Iran, with whom they have a special relationship. And they're under great pressure to do the most dangerous thing in foreign policy risk. Do something. The two most dangerous words in what do do for a living. Do something. Uh, that vague imperative has caused all kinds of trouble. And so if Israel goes in, as they're likely to do in the South, look for Hezbollah to be under great pressure to open the second front up in the North. Bibi Netanyahu has rightly warned them to stay out. The United States has warned them to stay out. But if Hezbollah were to activate a northern front, Israel would be honor-bound as they were in 1980 and since to attack them. And so there would be a two-front war suddenly between Hezbollah um, in the north and Israel and Hamas and Israel in the south. And so that would be going on at the same time. If that were to happen, there would be great pressure. Of course, Israel would have to respond, and there would be significant and bloody fighting in the north. If Israel were to gain an advantage, as they ultimately likely would in the north and would have to go into Lebanon, there would then be immense pressure on Iran to save the crown jewel of their terrorist organizations, and that's Hezbollah. And so Iran would be under tremendous pressure to directly get involved or more directly get involved in Lebanon and in directly supporting Hezbollah. If that were to happen, the last domino in the Christopher Clark nightmare would be the United States couldn't sit idly by while Iran and Hezbollah fought with the Israelis in the north and Hamas fought with Israel in the south. With a radicalized Arab world, the United States would be under tremendous pressure to directly get involved um, on behalf of Israel. This is the Christopher Clark nightmare that we absolutely must avoid. Uh, the good news is that on the surface, neither Iran nor the United States seem excited about this fight, that unlike World War I, there isn't a lot of jingoism going along behind the scenes with the Biden administration who's deeply worried about this Christopher Clark scenario, and frankly, as is the Iranian leadership, who've said all the right things about the access of resistance against Israel publicly, but privately seem in no great hurry to activate a northern front. And yeah, there have been a few missiles lobbed by Hezbollah, as there are at Israel, and a few desultory missiles lodged back, but that nothing much is happening there, because neither side want to do this. And the key, the canary in the coal mine to knowing when this political risk scenario gets out of hand is if this northern front is activated. If Hezbollah is pulled in in a general war against Israel, then we have a major political risk. That's when the brush fire could become a conflagration by this sleepwalker step, by a series of imperatives, micro-imperatives, which make sense individually but taken collectively, spell disaster and a World War I kind of escalation in the Middle East. The key to watching this is what does Hezbollah do? 
If a northern front is not fully engaged against Israel, this will be a limited war and thus limited political risk. But if Hezbollah do enter into it, all bets are off. And then you have to watch Iran and the United States, the bigger powers. To use the World War I analogy, it would go from Serbia being attacked by Austria-Hungary for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand to the involvement of Russia and France on one side and Germany, the Kaiser's Germany, on another. If these great powers get pulled into the local difference, this isn't World War III. Ferguson's got the historical analogy entirely wrong. This is about avoiding World War I. Thank you very much. Very glad to get this one out there for everyone. There's been a tremendous uh, demand for more on the war, and we will keep them coming as events dictate. Uh, I'm sitting here in Milan uh, watching this minute by minute along with my sleeping favorite cat, Mandela, who's sleeping here next to our podcast. Again, for those of you who've just joined, thank you for joining on board. We've had a huge uptick as one crisis. Please do subscribe. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking $70 a year, which is $7 a month, the price of my espresso, for us to give you cutting-edge commentary, minute-to-minute commentary on these crises which are changing our new era and challenging us, as hasn't been done in over a generation. And we promise to be with you here through all the ups and downs, the good times and bad times, giving you incredibly cutting-edge, on-the-money analysis. All we're asking is for $70 to do this please do give. Other than that, guys, have a great weekend. Again, I hope to do the Why Shaft Matters next week. Um, Have a great weekend and on to the next.